You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and WattWatchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and thanks for joining our weekly podcast, Energy Insiders. And as usual, energy is making the front pages of all of the mainstream newspapers and much of the TV and radio media as well. Um, what with the two Australian energy market reports and the media reaction and the government reaction to it. As usual, uh, my name is Giles Parkinson. As usual, joined by David Leach uh, from ITK. David, how are you? Uh, very well, thanks, Giles, and hello to listeners. And uh, um, what uh, what IEMO reports? I thought uh, we just had one person making policy. Uh, you don't need any reports for that. And uh, but perhaps we uh, shouldn't embarrass our special guest uh, today. <laughs> Look, our special guest is Chloe Munro. Chloe, um, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Giles. Lovely to be here. Yeah, now Chloe, of course, you're the um, chairperson of the, or you're the chairwoman of the Australian Energy Regulator. You no, that's a mem- No, no, I'm not. Oh, sorry, no, sorry. Clean, clean energy, energy reg- regulator. Clean energy regulator. You're confusing now, me with Paula Convoy. Oh, look, I'm very sorry about that. Look, I actually knew that, and I don't know what's happened to me this um, today. But anyway, the clean energy regulator. You're also a panel member on the Finkel Review, and um, you have just been announced as chair of the um, special advisory panel or the expert panel that will be advising Australian energy market operator. And tell us briefly before we go into the news what that's about. Oh, well, that's, um, and actually, I'm, I'm really thrilled to be doing that, Giles. Uh, the, the Finkel Review, just, just to go back to that, for me, it was, it was kind of a, my past coming back to haunt me because 20 years ago when I came to Australia, first I came to run the energy reforms in Victoria. So I was in at the start of the national electricity market, and then I've gone off and done all sorts of other things since. And uh, Finkel Review really was, you know, deep re-immersion and rethinking everything I'd ever thought about uh, energy and electricity in particular. So uh, since that, one of the things that's been fabulous has been how much continued interest there is in the report. And I've been doing lots of, um, you know, public speaking about that and thinking about, well, how how do we get from here to the actual implementation? And I, I just think engaging industry uh, broadly is so important in that, both both uh, the consumer side, but also uh, the, the you know the supply side, the mm. innovators, the challengers, and the incumbents, the people who've already put large amounts of capital into this ginormous industry. So that's what the panel brings together. Are really all the um, it's CEO level panel, so it's all the kind of strategic thinkers who have a big stake in the future of the national electricity market. Who, um, so the, the idea is that as AEMO works through implementing all the things that they have to do, uh, particularly around the Finkel Review recommendations, that they, right at the beginning as they're working up their ideas, have an active engagement with industry so the whole pro- cycle can happen faster. So they're bouncing ideas off you as they go. That's the idea and that, that we can really very quickly zero in on, well, if we're talking about, for example, a reserve trader mechanism, if it looks like this, is this a goer? Uh, and have some, then some working groups that at a more technical level report up to the panel, the expert panel that I'm chairing. So my job is just to wrangle all of those different interests, if you like, around the table and get the best minds really driving towards this is something that's truly workable in the long-term interest of consumers, which is what it's all about. And then AMO can make a firm recommendation that can go up through the Energy Security Board process 
in the knowledge that it's already been stress tested in, the, in a kind of that that sort of hothouse process. And I, 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 my, my, my hope is that this will allow the whole process to be speeded up because the Finkel review recommended doing all these really quite significant reforms to the way the national energy market works in three years. And that is, you know, by the standards of the last two decades is breakneck speed. So we really mm. have to find better ways of making those processes happen that get to the right outcome quickly. Well, look, so, we might just come back to Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead, David. So, Chloe, this brings me to one of my uh, pet peeves, that there's a lot of governance, but not very much management uh, within the NEM. We, we ha <laughs> and the Finkel yeah. report brings yet another layer of governance in the form of the Energy mm. Security Board. And it's to me, it's unclear who in the end has the executive responsibility oh. for the success or failure of the NIM. Yes, well, that's a really good question, David. And in fact, when you talk about governance, one of the things that really struck me was in everything that happened since um, I'd been involved, how little accountability there was for outcomes and how difficult it was for Energy Council, which in the end is the kind of supreme governing policy body from a policy point of view, because in the end, it's up to governments collectively to make policy and enshrine that in law and the regulations that go underneath it. So it seemed to me that actually it was incredibly hard to sheet home accountability for anything. So part of the purpose of the Energy Security Board is to make it, first of all, to be kind of what I think of like a program office. And I think of that really as a management role, which is to say, well, we've got this huge program of activity. Let's make sure it happens. Let's report to the, the supreme governing body, which is Energy Council about how that program is actually going. So there's real transparency about that. And then what are the outcomes? How is the energy market actually performing? And when you look at all the reporting that goes on, it's all very fragmented. So this is a way to bring it together. And it would be disappointing if the security board looked like an extra layer. It's really a knitting together of the layer that already exists with the market bodies, but they've each got you know, separate accountability, separate functions, quite distinct. And it's trying to bring that together in a sort of joint and several way that allows Energy Council, which you can't get away from because this whole thing sits within the, 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 um, the Federation and, 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 and constitutional division of powers and all of that. So you can't wish that away. But this is a way of, the Energy Security Board is a way of saying, well, let's make it absolutely crystal clear what is being done and what the results of that are. And, you know, the reason why I'm very pleased to be working with AMO specifically is because in the end of the day they are the market operator and I do feel that it's what AMO does is where the rubber hits the road and I'm particularly interested in that and particularly interested in how industry collectively has to step up to make this happen. They've all got different commercial interests but when you actually look at what is the, what is this all for it's for the interests of consumers and how do you pull that together so you can actually see that progress happening. Well, mm. well, we'll come back to that, uh, and I'll hand back to Giles, but t to me, it wasn't clear, and it still isn't, that there's one person that you can uh, point to that has, like, executive responsibility. I can see how the ESB can have that theory in that uh, that role in theory, but I just don't see in practice that, that's, uh, that they have the executive team or authority to have that responsibility, but, 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 but let's leave it at that and back to you Giles. Well I, I was just going to ask one more little question about that is just that a lot of these things um, Chloe seem to be suggesting to me that there is a real sense of urgency now but there also seems to be a, an acceptance that we're needing to progress we need to sort of be able to shift to this sort of new energy market as you like and we're not really discussing at that level at least um, that we 
must not change, that we actually need to move forward because we're getting new technologies. It is going to change the way that we operate the system. It's going to change the way we need to operate the markets. And it simply has to be gotten, gotten on with. Well, I think, I think that's a very, you know, there's a very deep acceptance of that, really, where you look at, um, you know, what the, the reception of the Finkel review, I mean, the Finkel report starts with the foundation of this transformation is happening and what we need to do you know to use david's words is to manage that transformation so that it takes place within acceptable acceptable mm. performance boundaries if you like so you don't mm. barrel down this transformation path and find that suddenly reliability or security gets totally out of whack and so the whole well, point let's, let's... of this of, of, of what the Finkel review is about is saying how can you manage that transformation so you get all four outcomes and you land that um, and mm. that's what all of those recommendations point towards and you know I think really the, the commitment and the support that's been from right across um, certainly the business community the consumer groups everybody pretty much for just no, getting Chloe, on with it it's extraordinary no, that, that's, oh, we, I agree. I mean, I, I did my own informal survey at, at the Clean Energy uh, Council conference and it's, it's quite, and you can see from COAG, there's a terrific reception to the report and you guys need to be fully congratulated uh, for, have, for coming up with a report that, that people uh, agree is, is a viable way forward. But I'm, I'm still not convinced we're going forward. Back to you, Joyce. <laughs> yes, look, let's... Well, um, I, I could point to some things. I mean, we're not there yet, but there is quite... There is a lot happening. I can't emphasise enough, David, how much is actually happening as we speak, even though it, hasn't, it isn't the full integrated coherent programme. But, you know, that was June. This is, uh, this is September. So, you know, we've got a bit of time yet, I think. Well, look, let's go look, look at the news of the week, and these are the two reports from the Australian energy market operator, the ESU, the lovely named ESU, which is the Electricity Statement of Opportunities, and this special report on dispatchability, which was presented to the government. And um, I have to say, after seeing much of how the media and the government reacted to it, I was wondering if I actually read the same reports as they did. Um, the, the fundamental point of the AEMO um, report seemed to me that was supply is going to get tight this summer in South Australia and Victoria. Um, it seems to be pretty confident it's got the measures in place or putting in place that should be able to manage that, um, thinking of battery storage and demand management and some of those um, emergency backups. Um, supply will get tight when Liddell is closed in 2022 in New South Wales, and it sees the need of that one gigawatt of dispatchable generation here. Um, but it also underlies the point that um, the energy system needs to evolve and quickly, which is what we just touched on about it wants a strategic reserve, at least for the short term. It wants the new market designs to guarantee that dispatchability occurs, that we get dispatchable generation, and it also underlines the need for flexible and fast response mechanisms, both on the supply side and the demand side. But the conclusion of the media to all of this was that the lights would almost certainly go out this summer and prices would go up. Some even said that they wanted to see a very, very big blackout to prove that renewables don't work, and many thought that renewables should be brought to an end. And the government's response to all of this was that um, the answer to everything was Liddell and to keep it open and try to get AGL to do so. Chloe, what did you make of the... What were the two big things? I'm going I'm to go to um, David in a minute on Liddell, but what were the things that struck you about these two reports? Well, first of all, in, in, if, if I can start with what you've just said in terms of the response, I think there's two things that strike me, which seem to me enormous communication challenges. Uh, one is a challenge that's always there, which is how do you communicate risk and probability? And when you look at the, the, the way that um, the reliability standard is constructed and 
the way you then look at it under certain, you know, probabilities of exceedance and combinations of extreme factors. It's very difficult to communicate and people find it very difficult to understand risk. So I think that's one real problem. And the other real problem that sits in this in terms of communication is the difference between baseload and dispatchable power. Yes. So when you look at the kind of arguments and the response, a lot of it was, and it still is, and even in you know the, the, what I think of as the more informed media, they still keep on talking about baseload power. And I sort of think, well, there really isn't, you know, the whole, one of the huge challenges at the moment in the market, there isn't baseload demand. And that's why AEMO talks, in its report, talks very specifically about flexible and dispatchable resources. And they actually say, they say, um, you know, the business viability of traditional baseload generation is being, is, is being eroded for all sorts of reasons, not just renewables, but the demand side, and increasing the need for dispatchable resources that can operate more flexibly than traditional baseload supply. Mm-hmm. So that's what they say. And to me, that doesn't sound very much like keeping Liddell open, particularly as when you then go back to the Finkel report and the 49 recommendations, which the government and the Energy Council accepted very quickly, and which people don't talk about very much, and they tend to talk about as though they're not sort of significant report, uh, significant recommendations, because they're so fixated on the 50th. But you know, we said things like what you need is an is orderly transition. So let's have a three-year notice of closure. Well, we've got more more than three years, way more than three years with Liddell, and we say you know, and, and then perhaps uh, recommendation that AMO should look at whether it needs a reserve trader mechanism. They've looked at that and they've said, yes, we do. Now let's go and design it and let's make sure we've got that in place for next summer, 1819, and then a more permanent mechanism thereafter, because um, that's the only way we're going to be able to complement the energy only market with this um, um, reliability standard supported by flexible dispatchable generation. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that doesn't have to be a very major intervention, they say. Uh, Fifty million dollars. Well, only about fifty million dollars a year. Uh, they, yeah. they, 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 you know, and, they get, and, and so in the scheme of things, in the size of the um, electricity market, that's a very, very small extra margin. Well, it's not really extra because what you get for that, in fact, the fifty million they say is what consumers have said they'd be willing to pay for that degree of reliability. So all yes, of that. Yeah, it would is, cost about a billion dollars to to get the deal back. Well, that's right. So, so, but, but, so you know, and I think, well, if you had if you had a lazy billion dollars, wouldn't you rather spend that on some gas generation that would be a bit more um, fleet of foot? So if you actually go back to the what the Finkel report said, which was basically reinforced by the AEMO advice, it says, exactly as you said at the beginning, Charles, we've, got, we've pretty much got this summer under control. We've taken an awful lot of steps. We're in a much better state uh, readiness for this than we were this time last year, mm. although, you know, obviously it was a shock that um, Hazelwood closed at such short notice, but we've got over that hurdle. And now what we need is something more permanent. We can spend the next few months designing that. And that's completely consistent with what the government agreed to in yeah. the 49 recommendations. So it's quite mystifying. I mean, you can see from the political management point of view, but why jump at this one solution, which is keep Liddell going beyond 2022? David. So, so, so this, this brings me to, me to the point. It's the it's the politicisation and the captain's picks. And what's become very clear to me is that is that the government at the moment wants to make energy and electricity a political topic, 
I mean, whether that's right or that's, uh, I think every person involved in, if I could say, the bureaucracy and the organisation uh, would prefer it otherwise. We, we, I heard someone uh, from AEMO uh, presented said the one thing they wish is there'd be less politics in it. And I think so many people in the industry wish we could just work towards uh, uh, what I might call an engineering and technical solution, for want of a better word. And I think there's enormous support in the community for that, very broadly speaking. But we've got politics involved. And so... Absolutely. And well, so well, we have to... Go on. No, no, you go. So, so I, I think in that context, we have to, unfortunately, there's no alternative but to treat it as a political matter. And... and I'm with Chloe. I mean, AMOs, quite frankly, needs to employ some more marketing people. Their key graphs in that, in that document uh, are not that easy to understand. I sent uh, one of them off showing that, New Set, that AMO doesn't forecast any, um, uh, any, any chance of the uh, standard being exceeded in New South Wales at any time. They, they, they basically forecast that it'll be okay in New South Wales. And no one can even understand that graph. It's not an easy graph to understand. Well, well, that actually goes back to what Chloe was saying about the communication. And also what um, Chloe identified at the start was about this level of reliability. Now, to put that in context, the reliability standards in Australia are extraordinary. It's 99.998%, which in New South Wales translates into the maximum amount that they could lose in any one year is 1,300 megawatt hours, which is about full load off the thing for about eight minutes a year. And what they're saying is that we might actually get to maybe half of that. So we risk losing 600 megawatt hours, which is the full load loss for about five minutes a year. And, um, well, th and you're quite right. Giles, I think, I mean, one thing that's worth mentioning in the report is that um, they, they do say, and I, I can't quite find where it is now, but um, that one of the things that needs to be reviewed is how the reliability standard is defined. Because the problem I with this is- I saw that this afternoon, Ron. It, it's all about averages and the fact is, you would think 99.998, you say that, you think, fantastic, it would be entirely tolerable. But it isn't because under certain combinations of circumstances, you, you can be within that standard, but you can still get four or five hours off supply for a small, you know, a small but still substantial part, part of the market. Exactly. So it really, the reliability standard doesn't work. And this is what I mean. They're trying to simultaneously operate within that and, and still look at the risk of certain combinations of events and you know how much margin they really need and you know they're talking about 13 percent it used to you know in 2007 it was 13 percent and now it's 12 percent and that sounds like quite a hefty margin but it can get eroded really quickly when you have a major outage of a interconnect or a particular so this whole thing about... Or, or, or an aging coal generator, which is really what they identify as one of the biggest risks. Well, one of and it is. That was very obvious in February. You know, They were teetering on the brink there, and it was thermal that was teetering on the... Absolutely. Talawara and um, Conangra in so, New South so this, Wales. So this brings me to all the other things. It's so easy to criticise that decision about Liddell on so many easy on so many grounds. It's hardly worth doing, Charles. As you know, I wrote an article, and I've been sitting on it to, to try and make sure... Um, I've listened to what other people have to say, but I, I find it totally objectionable that you can just stand up in Parliament and, 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 and make policy announcements without any due regard to process, right? That, that's the first and biggest problem. That is Venezuelan, <laughs> and it's an approach to, 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 to making policy. And quite frankly, uh, quite frankly, it's not the first time. We had the same thing with Snowy. Most people are prepared to say the current buzzword in the industry is no regrets. People are prepared to say that Snowy 2 is a no regrets kind of thing. And, and I, I was prepared to let them 
to, to ignore the so, way it was done on that basis. But it's very expensive, big decision. will stop other projects going ahead. You can't just stand up and announce these things. That's exactly, and, and, that's exactly the feedback that's, I'm getting. That's problem one. Problem two is it's incredibly unfair to AGL, uh, which has made a policy statement and, and is the biggest coal-fired generator. And, and that, by the way, that means managing their coal supplies. So if they've got to introduce another competitor into the market, uh, that's going to it's going to impact the price of coal quite significantly, not uh, as well as everything. And thirdly, it's the obvious thing about crowding out, and, and it's just the complete it's seizing on one perceived thing or making a, a sort of a dragon out of one thing in the AEMO reports that isn't even really there about New South Wales, and conflating it with a need to keep a coal-fired power station whilst ignoring the fact that that is going to crowd out other investment like gas or renewables. Um, and, and it's also completely ignoring the need for a strategic reserve. I mean, who's going to build a strategic reserve if you're going to be pumping money? And, and then we could get into the cronyism uh, of inviting some, some person into the, in the private sector to be a, a competitor with, you know, West Australian GST money or whatever it is. Well, look, uh, I was going to interrupt, David, but you were, you, you were flying so well, I just uh, let you go there. I just want to ask one question. Um, they're bringing in Andy Vesey to speak to him Nick, um, to, uh, on Monday um, this week. Presumably to try and convince them, look, if you're not going to keep it open, then sell it. What would it take to convince Andy Vesey to sell it? Well, just enough money. I mean, that's why the AGL share price has gone up. Now, AGL holds all the cards in this. They've got a very clear policy. They are an unwilling seller, if I can put it that way. And the only way you get enough... It's like the soccer transfer market, Giles. Most of our listeners don't follow that. But if you've got a really good player and, and you don't want to sell them, uh, then the, the guy that wants to buy it has got to pay over the odds. So you're thinking that Liddell could be the new Neymar, the, um, the Brazilian soccer player that was sold for $200 million. <laughs> And, and, you know, what, what a bunch of turds it is, Liddell, too, you know. Like, it's a, it's a hopeless station, as, as anyone will tell you, that's never run properly. Well, that was a rather crass reference to, I think, what Barnaby Joyce was saying over the weekend and um, last Friday about one of the big risks with all this um, progression towards renewables is that the list might stop and people might have a toilet moment um, stuck between floors, which was a bit unfortunate way of describing it. Look, I'd like to get this so, conversation... So, so, so <laughs> one, of, one of the things that Andy Blakers, and I'll stop in a second, that Andy Blakers emphasises with when you get enough renewables, it becomes more statistically predictable like because you've got lots and lots of small power stations the biggest renewable power station that you're likely to get is a wind thing of say 500 megabytes in in one region when you've got lots and lots of solar stations of 100 megawatts and and plus all the rooftop solar plus the wind uh, that 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 portion of the energy which is still not completely dispatchable but it becomes very statistically predictable Whereas with a few, and there are only a few, very old coal-fired power stations running around the NEM, we've got, what, uh, is it three left in Victoria uh, and, 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 and four or something in New South Wales, plus the Queensland ones which are isolated, it's statistic, the, 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 the risk is quite high of a supply outage. When we're talking about what's the problem in 2000, this coming summer, it's the risk of a supply outage in South Australia, in Victoria, that's the single biggest problem. Anyway, I've got that off my chest. I'll, sh- I'll show I'm, I'm glad about that. I'm glad about that. And I'm, I'm sure our listeners are too. Um, <laughs> look, let's just go a little bit further with this, um, with this report. Um, um, Chloe, the, um, one of the major things that they're recommending is a change in market design. I'm a little bit confused about whether they're looking for just a strategic reserve or a or and or a um, a change in market design, something that sort of adds adds more dispatchability to the market. Are, are they talking about capacity market? Do you think, or do you think they're looking for something a bit more subtle, a bit more finesse? Because 
there's been a bit of a, a few bad experiences in WA with that. Mm. Yeah, well, I think it's. I mean, and it's it's uh, worth I think uh, having a look at the Brattle report that was uh, released simultaneously with the advice, which doesn't itself sort of come to a landing, but goes through various case studies. Look, I mean, we, we discussed this a lot in the Finkel panel. And we certainly didn't come down, come to a landing and say what you need is a capacity market. But and, and in fact, what we saw is that the clean energy target, like the renewable energy target, to an extent is a capacity mechanism. I mean, it does very explicitly mm. say we need this much capacity of this type. But of course, as it turns out, this type um, doesn't have all the characteristics that, that you need for a fully functioning market because it, it, it doesn't have the dispatch the dispatchability yes. so is, is it possible that if you get the gen generator um, reliability um, obligation and you get some sort of strategic reserve that you can actually then have that thing addressed you don't need a further change well indeed you can and i mean the idea is that these are these are what um, you could describe as capacity mechanisms that sit alongside the energy only market but don't distort the way the energy only market functions and so that's why AEMO talks about it, it, its preference for some kind of reserve trader mechanism which in a way is just targeted procurement which is saying each year well when we look at what is actually in the market right now and, and um, that is both the supply side the demand side and the amount of interconnection does that give us enough dispatchability to be reliable under the range of circumstances which we can uh, we need to be able to cover and then here's the extra bit that we need and let's go out and and run some kind of tender for that whether it's a reverse auction or whatever so that's what they're saying now that is a capacity mechanism of sorts um, but it's not a full-blown capacity market where capacity is commoditized and you're paying um, over the odds. The whole, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the whole challenge with this is how do you get the pay the minimum extra that you, or, or add minimum extra costs that you need to provide that service? And um, certainly, you, you, you know, if you've got the generator reliability obligation, then you would need less of the other thing. But you know, conversely, if you if you have all these other interventions happening and the demand side operating and so on, it may be that you don't, in most regions, you wouldn't actually need to impose a generator reliability obligation mm. because there would be enough dispatchability. So they do all interact. And I think that's, you know, that's the, the task in a way that AMO have, have to address over the next little while. And really the question right now is how much of this can they do within their existing powers We've already seen the, the preparation for this summer and how much is going to need some rule changes and the authority of Energy Council behind it. And that's what they're saying. Well, we'll report so that this can be done in the course of 2018. So we're ready for the 18-19 summer. Which would, and, and then, of course, that op that's the opportunity for blame shifting, if I might say, that we already hear that, you know, the AEMO proposes something and the AEMC is too slow with the rule changes or it doesn't suit the Aha, David, AEM may I say, that is the point of the Energy Security Board. And the way that COAG Energy Council responded to that was to say, look, you know, if, if, this, if, if you get this kind of argy-bargy between the bodies or the process isn't fast enough, Energy Security Board tell us what needs to be done and we'll and we'll take the decision so to drive it along so that's exactly the point of that piece of um, mm. in, infrastructure Definitely. around the project program management is to make sure it doesn't 
get bogged down in this kind of finger pointing and all of that. Everybody's going to have so, to operate so differently. And again, you know, the Finkel Review said all three market bodies need to be strengthened. They need to be able to do their job really well and they need to be able to held, be held accountable for delivering in a timely manner the things we need to move forward. Mm. And they said a lot of things, you know, I, again, whilst we're talking in that current buzzword, no regrets, that there was a call for a plan to come out, out of uh, Finkel, but the plan wasn't given a really high priority. So, so and, and then there's a the call for these renewable zones and which are going to need some more transmission. And invariably, I think transmission takes longer than anything else. So that's one of the, anyway, my buzz mm. things I'd like to, if we'd have less of a problem in South Australia if there's more transmission, for instance. I know transmission's expensive. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, that's yeah. a really, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And this is, again, why we recommended that there needs to be a national transmission planning role and the strategy. And I, I, I'm not sure I agree with you. The whole thing around the plan has been downgraded. Certainly AEMO, and it, they, they refer to it in their advice to government. I mean, they're taking that very seriously. And um, when I talk to people in industry, I mean, everybody sees this because otherwise you do get into this chicken and egg thing about where do you build what? And a call has to be made. So I'm not saying that these aren't giant decisions that have to be made, but I do think that the um, support for the Finkel recommendations and what AEMO is doing is giving a lot of power to all of those institutions arm just to get on with it. And I think the Energy Security Board under the stewardship of Kerry Schott, who is a very practical person, um, you know, will focus on getting on with it. And I'm, I'm actually quietly optimistic about that side of things. That's great. Look, we're going to have to start wrapping this up, actually, because we've been going um, almost 30 minutes now, and um, that's usually our allotted time. I just want to touch on a couple of very quick things, David. Um, during the week, well, one, we had our um, energy and disruption conference, and I think the thing that struck me out of that was we heard a lot from the demand side, actually, and there certainly is just so many opportunities on the demand side to sort of deal with these um, with these critical peaks, and that's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. The other thing I do want to touch on is in South Australia. We um, heard late last week the South Australian, um, well, AEMO's reasons for imposing this extra caution on the South Australian grid. They're now requiring three gas generators to operate at all times. They, are, they will curb wind output at 1,200 megawatts, which we saw quite spectacularly early last week. Three days, wind was running at 1,200 megawatts. It looked like baseload plant, but it's effectively been curbed at a certain level during a very windy time. If they don't, and they'll do that if they don't get enough generators. Um, the impact of that is that there is curtailment. Um, it, um, the prices won't fall because you'll never get. You're always going to have three gas generators running. And the and the last victim, the latest victim of that, is an announcement um, by the South Australian government. They're actually going to drop their energy security target. Um, well, they say they're going to defer it till 2020, but to me that sounds like it's going to be dropped. Um, two things then, I guess, on that, David, if you've got anything to say on that, is that basically. As part of the technology challenge, I think, AEMO and a lot of other experts are getting their mind around what it means when you're adding more renewables in and um, there's a lot of interest about sort of frequency and inertia, which is not the problem here, but sort of strength of the system. Um, and um, it's un I guess it's understandable that they're being very cautious. 
Yeah, so, you know, I did a study earlier on South Australia and compared it with international experience, and there's no doubt South Australia's renewable supply, when considered as an isolated grid, is at, is at the upper end of the world experience. Perhaps the closest comparable place is Ireland, which is actually a smaller grid than than South Australia and, and Denmark. And Denmark, you can have as much wind as you like because there's these huge um, hydro resources next door in Norway, uh, and you can also export excess, excess wind to, to Germany. Uh, in Ireland, they actually did have curtailment of wind. I think it was above 40 or 50%, and now they're raising that all the time to 60%. Uh, one of the interesting things there is they've put a, a battery in for frequency control, uh, and, and the, the gossip I'm hearing, and I don't think it's going to be publicly released for another month or so, is that that battery, which is 10 megawatts, is able to have a, a full response within, I think, 100 milliseconds, uh, you know, whereas conventional frequency control that's done via uh, inertia from thermal generation takes typically 200 milliseconds. So for me, that's a very convincing demonstration of what batteries can do for frequency control, but actually it's an energy problem in South Australia. Uh, we also heard, as you know, I'd invite people to go back and listen to the podcast we did with Marija Petkovic, uh, who pointed out who's worked overseas, and she points out that if you know demand management can get fourteen thousand dollars or whatever it is the, um, the the maximum price for for electricity, then that can serve very effectively as a, almost a bit into a strategic reserve, um, and, and and so there's lots of ways without it. This maybe cheaper to do that than to build new generation. So. The point is, all of these things, there's a plan and a process and a way of doing these things. 2022 is a long way away in New South Wales. Uh, with all due respect for the improved forecasting of AEMO in its statement of opportunities, historically its forecasts haven't always been perfect. Whose has? Uh, I, I, um, and, and I just, anyway. So, so, and, um, so demand management, uh, I think we're continuing to see lots of innovation from companies around behind the meter and I think a lot more work could still be done there you know one of the big things that Finkel didn't really touch on uh, was how to manage the network companies and the huge challenges they face the, as we all identify the biggest single cause of uh, higher electricity prices that most of us most of us are facing certainly households is, is the increase in network prices and we still haven't touched on how to get uh, network prices down when demand is falling uh, so, um, mm, uh, I think, we, I think that's, going, that's going to have to be something. What's going to be interesting, I think, this week is uh, we're actually going to hear from Kerry Schott, mentioned by Chloe just a few um, moments ago. It's going to be her pu first public appearance, I understand, since her appointment as uh, head of the Energy Security Board, and she's going to be, be, be appearing in a very high-powered panel, actually um, hosted by the AEMC, which will include Kerry Schott and Audrey Zieberman from AEMO, um, the AER and the AEMC. Chloe, what's on your immediate agenda before we say goodbye to you? Oh, well, I mean, certainly making sure the expert panel is uh, up and running and can really support uh, moving this work along. And, and I must say, you know, li listening to David, I mean, I couldn't agree more with uh, all the points he's made. Uh, one of the things that exercised me most when I dipped back into the energy market after all this time was how little progress had been made on the demand side and I mean 20 years ago we really saw this as being a big player so getting you know the digitization of uh, the energy system mobilized in a way that benefits consumers and that they can really get hold of their data and use it in a way that doesn't mean you have to have a PhD so this means really good intermediaries there is so much opportunity there so that's not necessarily my personal agenda, but I'm very keen to work in a way that allows that innovation to be brought forward uh, because it seems to me there's so many ways that we can unlock value um, from investments that have already been made and you know, some are going to have to be written off as well. 
a faster, cleaner, smarter, and even cheaper grid. That would be a grid. wonderful thing. And it's, you know, it's not for shortage of technology, that's for sure. <laughs> no, this is the frustrating thing. The answers are out there. I think anyone who looks into it deeply enough knows that it's possible technically to make this transformation. Not that it will be easy, but that it's good chances of success. But you have to let the underlying processes work their way through at their own pace. You, anyway, I just can't say any more. That's a nice way to wrap it. Look, thank you very much, David, for joining us again. And um, we'll talk to you um, this time next week. And um, Chloe, um, absolute um, pleasure to have you on thank board. Thank you for the invitation. Today. I've enjoyed it enormously. Fantastic. And I would love to have gone longer, but we do have time limits. David, um, thank you. Anything right at the end to say? No, nothing, nothing more for this. Well, one. I'm just going to say thank you very much to our sponsors, which is SolarAy and uh, Watt Watchers. Um, they've been very kind to sponsor this podcast. It makes it all possible. And um, thanks for listening. Please drop us um, any uh, feedback that you get. Like us on the iTunes thing so more people listen to us. And um, we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.